So we began this series in 1 Corinthians last week, and I want to pick up uh, where we left off, and that is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse uh, 10. And so th- this is the way that I'm going to do it. I'm going to start reading in verse 10, and I'm actually going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. And this foreshadows the great ambition I have to get all the way through this passage, okay? But I want you to see kind of in context how Paul is addressing this church in Corinth. If you remember last week, it was this introduction, um, Paul, you're Corinth, you're, you're saints in uh, Christ Jesus, you're saints of God in Christ Jesus, and all these wonderful things God's done for you. And now Paul is going to get into some of the problems that this church has and how he wants to uh, appeal to them to address these problems. And so I want to read it, and then I'm going to go back through, and we'll, and we'll talk about it. Um, but this is the way Paul then begins his appeal 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, or brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, oh, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Christopher and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Well, I did also, uh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the sage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it was pleased, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of God. Now, to remind you, uh, Paul... He is addressing, he, he, he writes this letter uh, to, to uh, address, so, so the Corinthians, they had written Paul a letter. Paul was in Ephesus, about, church is about five years old, and they had come upon some things that they needed uh, Paul to sort out for him. And so they, they wrote to Paul the, the matters of their concern, and Paul says in, in chapter 7, verse 1, I, I'm going to address the things that you wrote to me. But before he addresses the things that they wrote to him about, Paul is going to address the report that he got from Chloe's people. You see that right there in verse 11. It's been reported to me, my Chloe's people, that there's a quarrel among you, my brothers. So Paul, before he addresses what they wrote to him, he's going to address the things he heard from Chloe's people said last week, we don't know who Chloe is. Um, we know she has people, and that's, that's about all we know. And, and so, uh, whether they're her servants or the people that worked for her, and they travel back and forth between Ephesus and Corinth, we, we, we don't know all those details. But Paul has heard, and evidence was brought to him, that there were some quarrels and uh, some problems in the church. And it begins a series of issues that Paul is going to address with this church. Like I said, it's his five-year-old church, and Paul, he planted the church, and he was there in Corinth for 18 months. He leaves, and the book of Acts tells us that then the next pastor, after Paul leaves, is Apollos. He's the second pastor. What you know about the church, just from reading the letter, is that the church is diverse. There's Jews and there's Greeks. It's very multicultural. There's single people. There's married people. There's lots of different stages of life. There's rich and there's poor. They have political differences. And, and so the church has all these marks of messiness. Chapter 1 is these party factions, the divisions, the politicking that's going on. In chapter 2 and 3 and 4, we'll look at beginning next week, um, you know, how does Christianity relate to the intellectual and the psychological and the social uh, uh, um, ideas and trends that are, you know, around them in the world? All, all the secular trends, you know, man's search for meaning and how is it found? How does Christianity relate to the wisdom of the world? In chapters 5 and 6 is the issue of church discipline. You have a man, he's having an affair with his stepmother. That's bad. You have uh, church members, um, two of them that are going to go to court against each other. They're suing each other. And, and so the question, you know, what, what degree does the church discipline its members? To, to what degree does the church come along and say, oh, you can't do that, you know? And what, what authority does the church have in, in a believer's life? In chapter 6, you have uh, you know, sexual conduct and, and sexual ethics. And the worldview of sexuality in Corinth was a problem 
for the church. And so, you know, we remind us that sex is good. God created it. But if you ignore God and do away with the, the boundaries and the design and the safeguard of sex, then you have this forest fire that destructively consumes individuals and relationships in society. And so he says all that in chapter 6. In chapter 7, marriage and divorce. You know, how does the church handle this? In chapters 8, 9, and 10, there are these cultural issues, different cultures in the church. They're, they're clashing. And so what is then abiding principles for, for all of us? And then what are things that we can celebrate our differences uh, in as a church when it comes to different practices? In 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, you know, how do we worship as a church? You know, how do we take the Lord's Supper and what's meant by that? And then the spiritual gifts and miracles and gender roles and all these things. And you have all of these uh, relational issues that are going on in this messy church. You know, getting along and living with each other in unity and harmony and the symphony that's supposed to be the fellowship of Jesus, and yet they're not doing that very well. And the answer that Paul is going to give them over and over and over again is, is not necessarily a relational answer, but it is going to be a theological answer, and it is grounded in who God is. That's what theology is. So when we study theology which literally the word means words about God, what do we say about God? Who, who is God? And so Paul is going to get sort of underneath all the things that are going on that is creating division and strife and quarrels amongst all these believers. And he's going to say, but let's go back to remembering who God is, because we're not supposed to live divided from one another. We're not supposed to live fighting each other. We're not supposed to live, you know, this side being mad at this side. We're supposed to live in unity in the fellowship of Jesus. And theology is where we have to start. Now, it's interesting that this ancient letter what we're going to find, I told you last week, it, it deals with right now issues. I mean, not much has changed, has it? And, and we went at it a little bit. I mean, nobody, I mean, maybe not nobody. There's somebody that's an exception here. But by and large, most people don't want to be in a messy church, Right? And if you do want to be in a messy church, we're worried. But we're, we're trying to find you. We're trying to figure out who you are. See, where there are issues that have to be navigated and sin that has to be dealt with and relationship issues and tensions that have to be worked through. And it can be exhausting. But if you think about it, that's the nature of a church that grows. It's the nature of a church that continues to reach out beyond its walls and see people come to faith. You have messiness. You have differences. You have 
diversity, you have relapses, you have immaturity, you have people who offend, you have people who are easily offended. And if you don't, your church has stopped growing. It's become rigid. It's become stiff. You see, because here's what the gospel does. This is what Paul, the gospel is going to bring people together who otherwise wouldn't come together. And so when you come together, and you wouldn't normally have come together on your own, you do. You have relational problems. You have relational issues and cultural issues. Because the gospel brings people together of different cultures and it brings people together with different relationship histories and brings people together with different views of politics. And it brings people together. Some people come out of real brokenness and some people are different places of healing from all kinds of things and relapses and setbacks. You see this. And so the gospel reaches people. And some of the people he reaches are super excited and jump in and want to share everything they know and, or think they know. and They get some things confused. And so, you know, you take them aside, you talk to them about it, help correct them. This is discipleship. So there are a couple of different, you know, kinds of churches with different problems. Growing churches where the gospel reaches people, they come together with different levels of maturity and perspectives. The need for discipleship is crucial, and the need for grace for one another is, is crucial. It's essential. Churches that don't grow, you know, you have different problems. Oftentimes, it's like pride and lack of passion and no vision, and it's, you know, they're fearful and suspicious, and, and so there are no perfect churches, no churches that aren't messy in one way or another. So what kind of problems do you want to have? These kinds of problems. The problems that come with reaching people of all kinds and bringing them together. And so here in verse 10, Paul, he, he, he references, you know, he's, he's kind of building, he's launching off what he said in verse 9, and he's reminding them they were called into the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You, you're called into this fellowship. God's faithful, and you're called into this fellowship, this partnership, this koinonia, and, and it's this fellowship of God in in. in uh, the, God's Son, who's Jesus Christ our Lord. And there's these divisions and factions and people are jockeying for importance in one way or another and pride's there and fighting and quarreling. And Paul's saying, listen, if you want to be united, I, I want you to be of the same mind and the same judgment. That's what he says there in verse 10. I want you, you need to have the same way of thinking. Not, not that you think the same way about everything, but that underneath, theologically, you have the same way of thinking. You have the same vision for what this deal is called the church. In, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul will instruct them. He'll say it this way, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, you consider others better than yourself. It, it's this theological underpinning for how we relate to each other. Now, what is that? What is Paul going to instruct them about that speaks to the 
quarreling and the fighting and the pride and the misunderstanding that fuels the divisions and dissensions amongst them. How will he address that? Well, the first thing he's going to say is remember who you're following. The, the true north of being a Christian is not a group that you think is cool or some preacher or leader that you think is amazing. All right? Look at verses 12 and, and 13. He says, what I mean is, each of one of you says, somebody says, I follow Paul. And the other guy says, no, I, I follow Apollos. And the guy says, I, I follow Cephas. And then you have, you know, this group's like, oh, we're those silly people. We, we follow Christ only. I mean, you know, uh, you have those folks. So you have Paul. He's the planter of the church. He's the one that founded the church. And there are people that are like, you know, I follow Paul. I was here from the very beginning. You know, my name's on the plaque. I'm on the original roll sheet, and I haven't missed a Sunday school class in five years. Then you have a group of people that, you know, I, and I was baptized by Paul which is awkward probably because then Paul na only names three people that he baptized and everybody's looking and they go, what? wait a minute, Tim, I thought you said you were baptized by Paul. And Tim's left to go, well, I, Paul's confused, he forgot. And so that's weird. Some are saying, I, I, I follow Apollos. I, I came here when Apollos, you know, Apollos is the great preacher and great communicator. And, and, and this thing really started happening when, when Apollos came here. And then others like, oh, no, 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 I, I follow Peter. And some are like, you've never even met Peter. And others are like, y'all are silly. It's just me and Jesus. The true north of being a Christian is not the, you know, some group or, or some person. You weren't baptized into a group of cool people or into the name of a good preacher. It's the gospel, the cross of Jesus. That's the starting place. That's the true north. The, that is the first thing. You, you're having quarrels and you're having fights. Let me bring you back to the first thing. The first thing here is the cross of Jesus. You, you're, Christ, he, he didn't send me to preach, the, uh, to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he, and he says, this is in, in not to preach it with words of eloquent wisdom, lest, and then he says, the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. The gospel is the cross of Christ. And that's, the first thing we remember. Now, before we look at the second thing, let me show you where Paul is leading us, the, the place where he wants to get us to, the, the place where unity in the midst of all our diversity is possible. So skip down to the very end, verses 29 to 31. This is where Paul's leading us. This is going to be the conclusion of everything that he is about to say. And you know it's the conclusion because he says, so that, so that, everything I've said leads to this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification or holiness and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So that we have nothing to boast about. Nothing in ourselves. That, That all we are and all we have and all we need and all that we could hope for, that is in Christ Jesus. So the boast that we have is in the Lord. That's where he wants us to get to. So how does he get us from fighting and quarreling to there wouldn't be any boasting among us? Now, building on the first thing, this cross of Jesus, Paul says, starting in verse 18, that the cross of Jesus, it's not something that you could have dreamed up in your wildest dreams. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's not something that you could have found all on your own because you would have never thought to look for it. He goes on, you you couldn't see it. You wouldn't have believed it. No amount of intellect or wisdom or savvy or psychology or anthropology or physics or philosophy or common sense would lead you to the only thing that has the power to save you. Because as far as the world is concerned and the world's thinking and the world's intellect and the world's very best wisdom, very best of everything, as far as the world is concerned, this idea is ludicrous. It is moronic, literally, that's what he says. Mankind's pursuit for meaning, mankind's pursuit of making sense of life, of finding the secret of what really makes life worth living. Man is on this pursuit. This isn't something Christianity created about mankind. This has always been. You can go to Barnes & Noble this afternoon or Half Price Books or, um, and you'll see the rows and rows of, of, of the best thinkers in the world trying to answer, well, what's the meaning of life? How do we get there? What, what, what brings us satisfaction? And Paul says... The thing that brings salvation to us, the the thing that the eternity in our hearts, as as Ecclesiastes 3 says, we have eternity written in our hearts that it's been longing for since our first breath. Paul says that search is in vain. The search is real, but it is a search for something that you can never find. It's a treasure map that leads you nowhere because the X that marks the spot is not found in this world, but somewhere else. And so the words Paul uses, he uses wisdom and folly, and, he, and he's kind of playing with these words. And wisdom, in one sense, is the very best that man brings to the table. And it's, and it's nothing. It amounts to nothing when it comes to the search 
for the thing that's most important. And folly, foolishness, this is the cross. Into our natural mind, the cross is foolishness. It's moronic. It's laughable. It's the last thing in the world we could imagine as the answer to our desire for greatness and eternity. And Verse 21, he begins, look at it again. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. But Paul says this was all by God's design. And he calls that whole endeavor, you want to see God, this is God's wisdom. And so now why does he call this God's wisdom. That man with all his wisdom and all his faculties and all his intellect and all the desire could search and search and search and never find the power needed to be saved. Why is that God's wisdom? Why would God do it that way? You see, this is what he's getting at. Remember, he's laying the foundation for unity. For Christians to live together in a way that they love each other and they care for each other and show grace for each other and fight for truth in each other's lives. This is what he's doing. So look at verse 26. For consider your calling. When you were called, your conversion, or in other words, when you became a Christian, he says, remember this. Remember, consider, remember when you became a Christian. When your life, remember your life when you became a believer in Christ. That's what he wants you to remember. And he wants you to know, listen, b- b- consider your calls. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. In other words, what he's saying is, remember, when you became a Christian, it was not because of who you were, or what you had done, or how smart you were, or what you had achieved, or what you were, where you were born, or who you were born to. When you became a Christian, it had nothing to do with anything you brought to the table. That's what he's saying. Instead, verse 27 and 28, look at how he says it. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God chose. 
the, the word in the Greek is, is the word election, and we, we don't like it. I know some of you don't like it. But he uses it three times. God chose. God chose what's foolish. God chose what's weak. He chose what's low and despised, you know, and the things that are not. So, so here's what you could do. You could write out next to those verses, though, verses 27 and 28. You could write grace next to those verses. Ephesians 2. Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, look, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, you were dead. That's how, you, that's how you came into this deal. You followed the course of the world. You were in the grip of the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the enemy. You, you were his. You, you lived in the passion of your flesh and you carried out the desires of your body and you were, you were a child of wrath, just like everybody else who's ever been born. But then he says in Ephesians 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace. So what does it mean to be a Christian? That's what Paul wants us to remember. What's the, how, how, do we, how do we get through the diversity amongst us and across our campuses and the, you know, the, the mixed bag of all the things that we bring in here together and be united in the fellowship of Jesus. How, how do we live with one another? So you know what Jesus said you know, in John 3? They'll know you're my disciples by how? Because you, you, everybody looks the same. Everybody listens to the same music. Everybody dresses the same. No. They'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. How do we love each other when we're so different? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, verse 29, so that no human being can boast no place where you look to yourself or anything about yourself and you say, oh, well, this is why I'm a Christian. That you wouldn't look at yourself and say, oh, you know, well, I believe because I'm better than the person, you know, who, who isn't a Christian. Or I'm smarter or I'm wiser. What were you... Were you more able? Were you more wise? Were you more discerning? Were you more humble? Is that why you were a Christian? Paul says, no, 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 that's not why. There's nothing about you that answers the question why you're a Christian. It is God's loving and sovereign choice that opened your heart. In other words, either God chose us, he chose us, or, or there's something about us that we can point to that we have in and ourselves that somebody else doesn't have. Maybe, the, maybe this, why did I believe and somebody else didn't believe? Why am I a Christian and someone else isn't? And Paul is saying it has nothing to do with you. God chose 
And I know at this point, I mean, because I can feel it in the room. When you're up here, you can feel all kinds of things going on in the room. Like these are the kind of things that suck the air out of the room. And you go, well, surely, probably, this is just Paul, right? I mean, you know, Paul. The red letters don't say anything like this. Well, here's John 6. This is Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. In the ministry of the Apostles, Acts 13, Peter, and the Gentiles heard this. They heard the gospel that Paul had preached, and they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed, ordained to eternal life, believed. So, so why is Paul bringing this up? Why is Paul looking at a relational problem of this Division and dissension and people quarreling and fighting and not getting along with each other. People trying to jockey, you know, and say, well, my, my group's better than your group. And, well, my way of thinking's right. Your way of thinking's wrong. And they weren't fighting over theological issues necessarily. They were just trying to make a name for themselves. But they weren't living in this unity. They weren't living in this fellowship of Jesus. They weren't living that out as they were supposed to. And it was tearing the church apart. And so then why does Paul bring this as the solution? And he wants them to know that how you think about God, who God is, absolutely informs and corrects and directs how we live our lives. So, so he's giving us a picture of what God's doing in the church, the picture of God bringing all kinds of people, Jew and Greek and slave and free and male and female and adult and children, all together in the fellowship of his son. So how can we be Christians together in the fellowship of his son, loving one another as, 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 as Christ? And, and, and how can we come together to do this and reflect his glory, a, a group of people who are so different in so many ways? Well, Tim Keller says there's only three ways. This interesting bit about it. The only three ways people could uh, could live together in any kind of unity: relativism, religion, and the gospel. In relativism, he says, "Listen, relativists can only get along with relativists because if you come and you're you're in that group, everybody's like, you know, everything's okay, and your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. And but but if you 
But if you say, listen, I believe what you're doing sin, and, and, but I respect you and I want to get along with you, they'll say, no, 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 you're just judging me, you're condemning me. That, that, that relativists, that they can only get along with relativists. And that doesn't work for the church. This is not the abandonment of truth. This is not the abandonment of things that are right. This, this is not the abandonment of the, of the truth of who God is and our stand in that truth. Paul's going to go over that and over that and over that. It, is not, it does not mean that we deny the truth in any way. And he says religion doesn't work because religion is, is essentially all the things you're doing to get to God. And, and religion doesn't work because what happens is at the end of the day, you end up feeling better about yourself than the other people. You know, you, you, you feel better. You, you're, you're winning. Everybody else is losing. That's how you view it. And so that doesn't work. He says, Paul's answer is the gospel. Because the gospel leads us to the place where there is no boasting. The gospel says God chose the weak to shame the wise, uh, to shame the strong. He chose the foolish to shame uh, the, the wise. He, he, he chose what's low and despised, and even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And so when we look at anybody, when we view anybody, thinks differently than we are, has a different moral set than we do. It's from another religion. We look at somebody that's not saved, you know? I mean, we look at somebody who's just completely different lifestyle and not interested in Christianity at all. We have to say, it is not because I'm better or smarter or have more morality or wisdom or common sense than they do. Verse 30, what's a Christian? One who because of God is in Christ Jesus. Not because you're trying or you're more moral or because you finally got smart. It's because of him. In Jesus Christ, he says, he became to us wisdom from God. You go back to the wisdom of God that is the cross that before was foolishness to us. Now, because we're in Christ Jesus, Jesus is our wisdom. And he says, this is what it means. He's now our righteousness and he's our holiness and he's our redemption. In righteousness, this is what we need. Romans 3 says, look, no one's righteous. No one's good. No one understands. No one seeks God. Well, we've all turned away from him. Even those who pursue morality and and goodness and, you know, in attempts to, to please God or get to God, the desires to be better than somebody else. We're not in Christ because of our own righteousness. We're in Christ because of God. And the righteous, righteousness we need is in Jesus and in his life counts for my life. And the holiness of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus is now counted to us. And the redemption, which means to be bought back from the slavery of sin and, and death and darkness and shame, and in this context has to do with, with everlastingly belonging to God. 
So what makes us a Christian? What's the basis for us to be able to live? It's not what I do. My deeds are just ways of me trying to be my own savior. It's not what I do. It's, it's praying a prayer like this, that Father, accept me not for anything that I've ever done in my life, but accept me for all that Jesus has done and all that he has for me, all that he is for me. Let him be my righteousness. Let him be my holiness. Let him, him be my redemption, not me. So that the foundation of your past is not, relationship with God is not your past, but it's Jesus' past. It's not your record, it's his record. Do, do you believe that? We have to say it's not because of us. There's no boasting. We're not here because of anything we did. We're not just a little bit more of something than somebody else. It's all because of what God has done. And it means then, in any encounter we have with anybody, we can have a humility towards them. I have the ability to show grace to, towards anybody. I have the willingness to share with them the cross of Jesus, no matter how foolish it may come across to their ears or their minds or their, their senses. And there's hope because we, we never write anybody off. We, when we see anybody, it's nobody that's too bad. There's nobody that's too far gone. There's nobody unable to be saved by God. And if we think that about them, then we forget our own salvation as a miracle of God. And if you understand this, Paul says you can get along because that lays the foundation and the basis for unity, to live out what it means to be the fellowship of Jesus, the community of grace, to be known as Jesus' disciple because of our love for one another. Because the foundation is the supernatural grace and mercy of the God who saved us. Is that you this morning? How... Is the spirit working in your heart and your mind this morning? My prayer is that the spirit's kind of on you in, in two ways, you know, comfort you. Say, oh, yeah, you're, you're in Christ. It's all of what Jesus has done. And, you, and you're, you're feeling the assurance of God's love this morning. Because the report card's not your life. It's Jesus' life. And... In the midst of that comfort, if there's places you need to be convicted, and you go, man, I have been such a snobby, terrible person. I've been prideful and haughty and uppity or whatever it is. 
You could confess that this morning. Repent of it. Lean into this grace of God so that no one would boast and that our boast would be in God. That's the first place we start. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do those things in our heart this morning. That in the midst of the messiness, Father, the first thing we do in whatever messiness we find ourselves a part of this morning, we'd be reminded of who you are and how you saved us. It's a miracle of your grace. Father, we could have searched all our life into the end of the world and never found the cross of Jesus. Father, if we did happen to see it or glance upon it, we would have thought it was foolish. And all that's by your design. So that the end of the day our relationship with you is is rightly seen it, it, it has everything to do with you and what you've done through your son Jesus and Father in no way is dependent upon me and Father let, let that truth that reality then make its way into our heart and that the response would be humility with each other. So that as John says in 1 John 4, that since you loved us, we also then would love one another. Father, we ask this the only way we can in the name of your Son, Jesus. And by the power of your spirit. Amen.